Uh, we just really think it's important to have a, a public and corporate reading of the word, especially as we're digging in passage by passage. So today we have Henry Bartel, who's going to read for us. From the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Henry. Appreciate it. All right. I'm just going to put that there. Good. So as I said, we're in this series called The Blessed Battle uh, about the Beatitudes of Jesus. And so last week we talked a bit about persecution, uh, discrimination, and mistreatment and how Jesus doesn't seem surprised that his followers would endure that. And it's really interesting because not only is he not surprised by it, as we learned last week, he almost encourages uh, a, a way of life that doesn't fight back fire with fire. It's more of a, a patient endurance through mistreatment, through discrimination, and through, uh, 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 yeah, just, just general mis- mistreatment, persecution in the name of him, in the name of his kingdom. And so we're going to continue that. This is a, a part two of Happy Are the Mistreated this week. We're just going to dig a bit more into that, and in particular, what happens when it's the people that are closest to us, the people that we may know the the best, that we're receiving that from. Uh, But I will say this, before we we really go into uh, into that, not everyone sees persecution the same way. We talked about that a little bit last week. Does it exist? Uh, uh, How much? How pervasive? Is it really in the U.S.? And so there's, there is, there, and, and there has been a conversation about our posture towards our culture, the society that we live in, how we're Christians to, be, to follow Jesus and be citizens of this world and of this country that, that we are a part of. Uh, it may not surprise you at all to know that not every Christian agrees about how we should respond to mistreatment, specifically when we're targeted because of our faith. There's a, a writer at First Things Magazine named Aaron Wren, who is one such person, and he speaks for the many who are reading the trends of the times, and he thinks we should adapt our pro- approach on how we engage with others because of how culture has adapted its viewpoint of the church. And so he has come up with a schema called um, uh, just the, way, the, the three worlds of evangelicalism. And so we know like Christianity in America and the world is bigger than the evangelical stream, whether or not you consider yourself an evangelical or ex-evangelical or that's just not your upbringing anyway. But he's got, he's got three ways, 
through in which the world sees the church, specifically evangelicalism. He calls the first one the positive world. And this was a, a period of time that came before 1994 is, is kind of the arbitrary date he's landed on for various reasons. And in the positive world, society at large retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. To be known as good, church-going men and women re- remains become, uh, let me say this again. To be known as a good church-going man or woman remains part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer. Christian moral norms are the moral, uh, basic moral norms of society and violating them can bring negative consequences. It, it used to be, uh, before the, the 90s is what he's calling it, but it used to be if someone didn't go to church, if you didn't go to church on Sunday, you would be asked about it by your boss on Monday. Didn't see you at church yesterday. Are you okay? Is everything good? Because culture was arranged in, in such a way that it actually undergirded the Christian faith. Okay, the second one, he calls the neutral world, 94 to 2014. Society takes a neutral stance towards Christianity. Christianity no longer has privileged status, but is not disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian has neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. Christianity is a valued, valued, valid opinion within pluralistic public square. Christian moral norms retain some residual effect. So there's more of a, you know, we don't mind the church. The church is okay. It has some good, some bad. It's whatever. It's up to your per, personal preference, Okay. That brings us to this negative world. He says the turning point was about 2014, up to now. Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressed expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. So I think, I think there's, there's some good uh, in what he's trying to describe. I think there's a, there's a recognition that, that we all see that society has changed its viewpoints of Christianity for better or for worse, and we can have that conversation, but it has happened, and it's come in phases. It hasn't come all at once. But to, to believe the things about historic uh, orthodox faith, specifically about sexuality, um, human dignity, things like that now, um, that, that you, you still held to about 10 or 20 years ago, now it's scandalous to say the things we, we could say in public 20, 30 years ago, so on and so forth. But I, I'm not so sure that the dates are that. I, I don't think there's this black and white that's uh, uh, in the schema. Uh, and I don't think it, the, the positive world of the pre-1994 was equally positive for everybody. I mean, ask the black church during the civil rights era if they were living in a positive, like culturally positive uh, a posture uh, towards society and society towards it. So, but I, but I think there is something important to acknowledge and to actually mine out and to say, because culture has changed, what are we to do about that? And, and Wren has some opinions about that. One such is this Benedict option uh, taken from a book that says Christians need to actually just go out outside of society, leave it behind. It's a burning ship that's sinking. We need to create our own institutions. We need to basically live in our own Christian bubble and reclaim that because there's no way society that can be redeemed. 
The other side, the other, uh, and I would say that that's an extreme. The other extreme is what you see in so-called Christian nationalists that use the the uh, polemics to really attack and and want to elect people and mandate morality and and take America back and and get back to this golden age. That's another extreme that we see in the conversation happening. I I wonder though. Does a changing culture mean the church has to change its posture? Because it's not like this should be surprising to us. I I think we enjoyed an age, especially in America, where the church was seen as a positive net good for everyone, and that's changed. But does that mean we have to change back to the culture? Do we have to fight back, or do we just have to throw our hands up and give up? Is there... Is there another way? And, and I, of course, I'm setting up this dichotomy and trichotomy to say, yeah, I actually think salvation isn't found in attacking everything that we don't like about culture. And I don't think salvation is actually found in burying our head in the sand and retreating all the way from it either. I think there's a way that Jesus calls us to live in and among, but not of. That's always been the posture from from the the the, the uh, ancient uh, the, the the Jewish and, and and early Christian posture to to living in the Roman Empire um, to uh, up till now we see it all throughout history is it's not a give up because this world is just going to burn that's been some posture and it's not well we just have to fight to maintain there's a way that Jesus calls us to follow him that is otherworldly. It's so different and it's so misunderstood, but that's the life that he calls us to, to love it, but to not be of it, okay? Mark Skindrit in his book, The Ninefold Path of Jesus says, Jesus suggests that particular difficulties will come to those who follow his way of life, a way of trust, lament, humility, justice, compassion, right motive, peacemaking, and surrender. If we had to summarize the path he lived and taught, we could say it was the way of radical love. If we follow love far enough, we will be misunderstood, made fun of, falsely accused, and mistreated. Radical love might even cost you your life as it cost Jesus his life. So in the midst of all of this mistreatment, being made fun of, being pushed back against, Jesus actually even extends a blessing to those who suffer for his name. And it doesn't end there. He continues to elaborate on that, that blessing. The happy are those who are mistreated because of me. It says this in Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And again, I just really have to highlight because of me. There's, there are many of us, myself included, that have been pushed back against, falsely you know, accused of things, and I... I use the name of Jesus, but it really was more ego. It was more really for personal agenda. Jesus is really clear. You're going to suffer. Suffer for the right things. Suffer in my name, right? Rejoice, he says. Rejoice in the midst of that and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is anticipating mistreatment here, not as an abstract concept, 
but if it came from unexpected sources? What if the people around you uh, who, who you actually knew the most, you worked with, you lived next door to, uh, they were in your family, uh, they, you got your daily latte or your haircut from them or whatever it is, what if they were the ones that mistreated you the most? And that's true because it takes trust for, for cuts to land super deep, right? And so Jesus is preparing us, not in this cynical, like, yeah, everybody's gonna hate you, you know, the world's terrible anyway, like, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, right? This is, isn't a hopeless cynicism. It's actually a preparation so we can actually face these things with sobriety. That we can actually expect and then be surprised when it doesn't happen in a good way, right? Instead of, I think most of us have lived in this, this positive to neutral world that when we experience pushback, we're actually surprised by it. Because we've expected everything to be comfortable and easy for us as Christians. And Jesus is basically saying, who told you that? Who told you this was going to be easy and everybody's going to love your message and everybody was going to like your posts on Facebook when you share it? Like, who, t- who told you that? You should expect trouble when you say things in my name, when you act in accordance to the values of the kingdom. Expect that there will be people who don't like what you have to say. And in the midst of that, you're blessed. You're blessed because I went through it too, is what he says. You can rejoice and you can be glad knowing that you are still speaking truth in love for the sake of the kingdom. And he connects this idea here, which I think is interesting, to a heavenly reward for enduring all these things. And that it's possible, like I said, to to, uh, experience rejoicing, joy, enjoyment, in the midst of that. Doesn't mean you necessarily enjoy suffering. We're not, we're not called to be masochists, but we're, we're, we're called to enjoy Jesus who will meet us there in the midst of it. Scott McKnight says this in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. The notion here is that one's eternal or kingdom state correlates with one's response to God in the present life. This isn't works righteousness, but instead the moral call to responsibility in light of eternal correlation. Jesus later teaches that the disciples' reward far outstrips the correlation. Blended together, the persecuted are those who seek God's will in spite of what others want, who love God so much that they are faithful to God when oppressed, and who follow Jesus so unreservedly that they suffer for him. Inherent in persecution, then, are both a love of God and a denial of self. This kind of mistreatment isn't new for God's people. We see it all through church history, and we actually see it in the scripture itself. In Hebrews 11, which I'm sure if you grew up in the church or have some kind of familiarity with the Bible, uh, it's, it, you're familiar with this hall of faith, uh, 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 these verses here. So in Hebrews 11:13, the writer says this, all of these people, he, he or she, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. I'm kind of pulling for like Priscilla or someone awesome like that. Um, it's me personally. Um, they, they list all these, these people that had done great things for God and they died in faith. They, they both, uh, they either you know, saw great things accomplished for God or they endured horrific suffering in the name of Jesus. And it says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And I, I think that's the key to a lot of this, to reminding ourselves The world is not our home. It's a grace. It's a gift that we've been given to steward for now. But we are pilgrims. We're just travelers on this earth. Entrusted, yes. But America is not our home. Your neighborhood is not your home. Our city is not your home. 
We were foreigners and strangers for a time, and it gives way to something much better ultimately. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them uh, a city for them. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two and they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Mark Scandrit, again, his book says this, radical love invites us to endure to keep on doing good, whatever the cost, to believe that the right action is more important than any opposition we may face. When you have something worth dying for that means more to you than any resistance or persecution you might face, that's something to rejoice about. In each moment that we seek radical love, we join the lineage of those who have gone before us, who have lived from the hope that love is greater than fear and death is not final. I think that's Jesus' whole point. Uh, faith and love are greater. And this, this life that we live, this you know, 70, 90, 100 years, whatever it might be for you and for me, it's not it. So we don't have to be afraid of loss. We don't have to be afraid of what people might think of us or what they might say behind our backs. That's not the bigger point. The bigger point is that Jesus invites us to come follow him and to break these cycles of evil and hatred and to give away radical love in, in exchange. So how do, we, how do we walk in this way of radical love? I wanna talk about two things that are necessary uh, just today. This isn't exhaustive, but I think two things I just wanna dig into a bit. To, to walk in this way of radical love means we must be transformed on the inside first. To give away love means that we are in possession and we're able to flow in it. Okay? And then secondly, to be better equipped to speak about our faith in public. And public might be the dinner table, it might be social media, it might be public office, it might be your business place. Whatever it is to take it outside of, of the internal workings in your heart and express it to others in ways that are loving and kind and point to Jesus. So I wanna talk about those two things because uh, the Arbinger Institute, uh, in their book, the, the Anatomy of Peace, says this, if we are going to find lasting solutions to difficult conflicts or external wars we find ourselves in, we first need to find our way out of the internal wars that are poisoning our thoughts, feelings, and attitudes towards others. If we can't put an end to the violence within us, there's no hope for putting an end to the violence without. And so one of my favorite uh, books to talk about is a book by Edwin Freeman. He wrote A Failure of Nerve. And actually, it was, it was um, a bunch of his sayings and, and, and writings that were published after his death, but it's a fantastic book. He was a family therapist, a leadership consultant, and an ordained rabbi. He applied family systems theory to leadership situations like churches and even the nation. And he challenged the notion of cultural progress that says our nation is headed toward an ever unified utopia. He said that when you look at the data, we become we progressed economically, technologically, and so on, but we're actually regressing as a whole, both emotionally and relationally. And when we look at things through his lens, we see how fragile the world really is. 
I mean, just go in the comment sections on YouTube. It's just terrible there, right? If you, believe, if you don't believe in human depravity, all you need to do is look at the anonymous accounts that post in places like YouTube. Um, in his book, Failure of Nerve, he articulated five aspects of an anxious culture that we can see uh, develops into a self-perpetuating cycle. It's like doom scrolling of 20 years ago up to now. Um, the first is reactivity. It's a cycle is spun up in a culture where people who are constantly reacting to the events of life around them without mindful reasoning and self-restraint. It's the constant stream of anxiety expressed through anger, outrage, offense, and vitriol towards others. Sometimes this is couched in social justice language when it's really a way for media advertisers to make money off of us as our hits, likes, and shares drive up their revenue. I know that's super cynical, but prove me wrong, okay? And this is, he was writing this before social media. It's crazy. All, the, all we had it was email back when he wrote this stuff. It's crazy. Second, reactivity gives way to hurting. The instinct, instinct to follow the crowd as it devolves on an emotional level into a mob mentality. We see this in cancel culture where someone's misstep provokes backlash by the masses and they're stunned and blackballed forever. Do you remember what it was like, by the way, when you saw empty shelves lacking toilet paper? Everybody's showing up to buy, what did it make you want to do? Buy toilet paper. It's like, what, where did that come from? Well, it comes from this, this kind of reactivity and hurting, uh, which gives way to blame displacement. We focus on the forces that we feel victimized by rather than looking under the hood of our own soul to see what is causing anxiety in us. It's a posture where we give power over to other people and situations instead of taking responsibility for our own emotions. We and the systems we inhabit are paralyzed and we're inhibited from finding proactive solutions, which causes a uh, quick fix mentality. Because there's low tolerance for pain and resilience, solutions are shallow and temporary instead of searching and incisive. It's a band-aid solution that doesn't last. Because of our on-demand, two-day shipping culture, we are really geared to, to, to seeking out the quick fix. Like, you guys, do you have that feeling when, when you have to pay for shipping now? And you're like, man, what a ripoff. <laughs> or if it's going to take five days instead of two days, or if you live in a big city, like same-day shipping, feel like, man, that's forever. It's like, that is crazy, right? So we're looking for this quick, so you like... I don't know. Anyway, I won't go down the rabbit hole. We did that later. Um, lack of well-differentiated leadership is the, is the conclusion. Psychologists use this term, differentiated leadership, to describe someone who is aware of their boundaries between themselves and others. He or she understands that another person's emotional state doesn't need to dictate their own emotional state. In a cycle of anxiety like the one I just described, an environment is created that works against healthy leaders who can bring need to change. The system actually uh, maintains a status quo where any health trying to be injected into it through leadership or anyone else actually gets pushed back against. This is what we see happening in our culture. The way of Jesus is a healthy system a value system of the kingdom, trying to be inserted in different systems and institutions. And what happens is the system actually stops fighting itself for a minute and fights all the health back and actually kicks out any healthy person, any healthy idea trying to, be, trying to break that cycle. Friedman described how to break the cycle, which required the insertion of what he calls a non-anxious presence. He describes it as those individuals who are able to navigate tense 
situations by differentiating themselves from the emotion of the problem and providing input that is decisive, kind, wise, and calm to plot a way forward. It's the kind of leadership Jesus modeled and welcomes us, and he welcomes us into. It's the kind of people that our world needs right now. Through Jesus, we've been invited uh, to step into our workplaces, homes, and neighborhoods to serve as a non-anxious presence and break the vicious cycle of fear. And I'm gonna quote something that I quoted last week, so it might seem familiar, but I think it's so phenomenal, it deserves to be heard again. Ronald Rollheiser in his book, Sacred Fire, said, Jesus took in hatred, and he held it, and he transformed it, and he gave back love. And he took in bitterness, and he held it, and he transformed it, and he gave back graciousness. And he took in curses, and he held them, and he transformed them, and he gave back blessings. And he took in murder, and he held it, and he transformed it, and gave back forgiveness. So next, after we've established, we need to become the people of, of, of a non-anxious presence to bring health, to bring the value system of the kingdom to the problems that our world is facing. I wanna talk about briefly how to engage with people who disagree with us. How are we supposed to posture ourselves towards them? Do we fight fire with fire? Do we take you know, uh, tooth for a tooth and blood for blood, or is there a better way? And actually, just this week, Tim Keller, writing sort of in response to the stuff that Aaron Wren was writing about, um, published an article online about how to speak, how Christians should speak to others in public. And again, public could be your dining room table, your workplace, your neighborhood, things like that. In it, he says, we must have three things, what he calls, uh, number one, affection, It's a spirit of humility and love. It does not matter how much our culture changes. These values of the kingdom never change. We never get to use the kingdom's tools to fight back against it. We always fight a greater fight, a spiritual fight. And actually, I don't even love the language of fight because it just kind of meets people on that same battlefield. We undo the, the, the bonds of hatred using the tools and values of Jesus. Love, humility, the fruit of the spirit. You know these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, humility. These must be evident as we speak. This is what he says uh, about the gospel publicly. Right now, the most popular public figures show confidence and fearlessness, but not love and humility. You notice like boldness isn't one of these values. Just being brash and bold and saying hard things, that's important, but it's not a fruit of the Spirit per se. And I don't know that this is an exhaustive list about the character qualities of Jesus in our life, but boldness and brashness in all those things, it's not humility and love. We can't follow in that train, is what he says. And then secondly, we need persuasion. Culturally compelling arguments. Acts and Paul's epistles give us many examples of how Paul argued. He did not merely proclaim truth propositions. He showed the particular audience on their own terms why they should believe it. So we should not merely tell people the truth, but look for pervasive, persuasive. I don't know what my problem, I haven't had enough coffee, I think. Just keep stumbling over every single word. But look for persuasive ways of reasoning with people's minds and hearts. It's true. We don't just throw truth bombs at people. I mean, just for a minute, think of the memes that you post, the gotcha posts, the snarky comments. 
Yeah, you're being bold for Jesus on social media, good for you. But is that a persuasive and compelling argument undergirded with humility and love? That's what he's talking about. Don't back away from saying the hard things. But we are to always speak truth in love to people. They may not always hear it in love, but you can't control that. You can't control how people interpret what you're saying. But what you can control is your heart posture, your tone. What do I mean when I share this? What do I mean when I say this? What do I mean when I do these things? And that's what you'll be held accountable for. You will not be held accountable by God on that day when you meet Jesus face to face based on how people responded to you. Otherwise, Jeremiah was a terrible prophet. Otherwise, Jesus and John the Baptist were terrible messengers, right? Because they had like fractions of the people that have followed them ended up being faithful to the end of their lives. You're not responsible for how people respond to you, but you are responsible with what you put out into the world. And then thirdly, resolution is what he calls this, a quiet, courageous confidence in the truth of God's word. It will not do if audiences see Christians being hesitant to affirm anything that the Bible teaches. Even if you disagree with a person's belief, the strength and integrity of their belief can command admiration if they are visible. So own what you believe. Do it in humility and do it in love. But God, God's word is truth. It's what we base our lives on. Not to say we have everything perfectly like attenuated to it or we understand it perfectly, but the main and plain of the scripture that Jesus is Lord. You know what that means and how, how uh, scandalous that is and, and even was to say Jesus is Lord, meaning Caesar is not. Jesus is our leader, meaning every other leader has a back seat. That he is our example, that he is our savior. That's what that means. So does this mean that we never fight back? Again, I'm not even comfortable with that language of fight back because I just think it inflames all, those, all the egotism. However, the question still remains, should we not make our voices heard in politics and the courts and so on and so forth? Now, I hope what I just shared from Tim Keller says that, yeah, there, we should make our voices heard. We live in a society that makes room for differing beliefs so that we can actually argue and debate kindly and with dignity, but we can make our voices heard. And I'm so glad we live in a country that we're able to do that. But how we do it makes all the difference. Of course, we can... We can Vote and we can run for office and we can, you know, go to court and, 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 you know, make our voices heard in those ways. But ask yourself, as I do these things, what is my heart doing? Does my heart swell at every victory? Every time I land some kind of snarky comment and I own someone online, what does my heart do? And what if, what if our person doesn't get elected? What does your heart do? Does it, does it empty out? Was our hope in that that would make everything right? What happens when we lose a court case or you know, someone makes a good point that I don't have you know, articulated reasoning to explain that back to them? What does my heart do? Does it, does it shrivel? Does it, does it get fearful? Because a lot of times like, it's hate versus love, right? It's, it, or it's fear versus love. Fear and love displace each other. And if I don't have love, if I'm not flowing in a hope, 
that Jesus ultimately is the answer to every problem. And he has wisdom available to us to give and to be in the midst of that. Then love is displaced with fear, fear of loss, giving way to anger, hatred, all those things. What I want you to understand is I'm making a point to the varying degrees that we can expect there to be loss in our life as culture continues to change its posture towards the church and towards scripture. Jesus says, in this world, we will have trouble. Why? Because ultimately, it's not our home. Our home's with Jesus. Being a Christian in this in-between age means that we're involved in working for justice and mercy, and we're not fearful when the system bites back. When the world systems say, no, I don't want to be displaced with kingdom values, there's a collision, and we're invited to sit right in the middle of that and bring hope and love. There is a a story I read about Martin Luther King Jr. that at the height of his ministry uh, and and just the civil rights era, things like that, he he was at a rally and he was speaking, I think it was in a gymnasium and it was packed, hundreds of people there. And he was speaking on nonviolent resistance and civil rights. And there was a, there was a white supremacist, a, a Nazi sympathizer actually, sitting up near the front who rushed the stage and, and hit Martin Luther King square in the jaw. And it surprised everybody, but pretty soon the security team, his, his friends and allies in ministry swarmed and wanted to remove the guy. And Martin Luther King said, why are you, don't take him out. <laughs> He needs to hear what I have to say. So they actually like invited him to sit back down. And the guy like, he landed one punch that didn't have a plan for step two, right? So he's kind of like stunned. And so he accepted the invitation to sit down and listen to the rest of the sermon, the rest of the, the rally speech. And it was really, really interesting because Rosa Parks was there and she rushed over to the, the neighborhood pharmacy and got two aspirins and a Coke Coca-Cola, because that was her remedy for a headache. So she was there, and she was trying to minister to him. And he reflected back later, Martin Luther King reflected back later on it, and he didn't know if you know, he'd changed the guy's mind. But in that moment, he said, it was every, evident to everyone who was there who the coward was in the room that day. And it's that kind of taking in the persecution, the mistreatment, and transforming it with the love of Jesus and offering back forgiveness and offering back hope that as these two world systems collide and keep colliding, we have the option of we can, we can tuck tail and run and bare our heads and just say, well, this is a sinking ship. Good luck to everyone else out there. We could fight back. We could use the tools of the world to fight fire with fire. We could, we could, we could dismiss Jesus's commands to turn the other cheek to go the extra mile because we just really need to take it by force. But instead, I think Jesus calls us to a way to expect mistreatment. And even by those that know you the best and have the goods on you and can just twist all those ways they can, to actually expect those are the tools of of this fallen world. And we're not surprised when that happens, but we're able, because we're expecting it, to absorb it, to transform it, and to offer something back that's better. So what I would like you to do, I'm gonna have the worship team come up this week. Why don't you stand with me? What I would like to do 
is invite a reflection. I love to give a practice or a next step every week because I want you to do. I want you to be able to have something practically to do to apply this to your life. And I, I just kind of like for, uh, putting it in a form of a question so you could sit with it. In what ways does anxiety block your ability to respond to others well? And you're, when you're in those tense moments or you're scrolling and you see something that you disagree with, how much are you aware of anxiety clouding your judgment and causing an inability to respond in love? How can you become a non-anxious presence in the spaces that God has put you? In your neighborhood, at your workplace, at school? What does it look like to stand back differentiated from all the anxiety that's being caused and actually ask for the wisdom of Jesus to know how to break that cycle. Let me pray for us. So Father, thank you for this church family. Thank you for those that are watching or listening online. God, we invite your peace to come in a greater measure. We invite you to be with us, God. Whatever this looks like for each of us, whatever it looks like to to be a non-anxious presence, just like you are, Jesus. We want that. We want to be above the fray. We want to invite your wisdom into impossible situations. And we don't want to get triggered or activated by what's going on around us. So help us, God, first conquer the inside of us. Send your spirit to fill us freshly, God, and to calm the inner storms of our life. And help us see these situations with a new set of lenses. A lens of possibility and hope. The lens of of calm and peace, God. Make us that kind of people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.